we need you to come as we open up the word of God so that you can show us what this word means. Lord, so that we won't be guilty of just sitting here and listening to your word and just hearing your word and not doing anything with it. So Spirit, come. Speak to us. Bring this word to life in our lives. And show us how you want us to change and transform us more into the likeness of Jesus because of the word that we encounter today. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, a few weeks ago, we kicked off our brand new series that we're walking through for the remainder of the year, and we're calling this series Meta Narrative. And a meta narrative is a grand story, it's a huge, grand, overarching story that really explains all of life. And our purpose for launching into this year long series is for, number one, for us to get into the Word of God. And so uh, we've given you some tools, some resources to do that, and many of you have been taking advantage of that. And uh, I'm having conversations with folks every single week where you're encountering something new in a story that you've read, you know, 20, 50, 100 times, and yet God is speaking to you. And so we praise God for that. That's what he does when we come into uh, come to his word and we come into contact with him through his word. Uh, but the main purpose in, in going through this series is to help you connect the dots and see that the Bible is not just a collection of random stories and random events and random people. That the Bible is this grand story. It's this grand story of God and his redemption of us, his most important creation, human beings. And that every single part of the word of God is pointing us forward, is preparing us for Jesus, the coming of our Savior, the coming of our Redeemer, of the Messiah. And this morning's story is going to be no different. So this morning, I want you to grab your Bibles, and I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. If you have the YouVersion Bible app, download it on your smart device. You can open that up. Uh, click on events, search for North Point, and my message notes will be there for you as well as the text that we're going to be looking at here this morning. So Genesis chapter 6, as you're turning there, you know, if you were to do a poll of the average American of the top three Bible stories that they know, probably the one that would show up on every single list is the story that we're going to look at today, Noah and the Great Flood, Noah and the Ark. Probably every single American, if they spend any time in church at all, or even if they haven't, they'd be somewhat familiar with the story of Noah and the ark. And Noah's ark brings up a lot of questions. Uh, some of those questions are like this, you know, how, how could a good God do this? How could a good God, you know, send floodwaters on the earth that literally wiped out the entire earth with the exception of one family? How could a good God do this? Or historical questions like when it says the whole earth was covered by the flood, does that mean the whole earth or does that mean like the whole you know, earth as we knew it you know, back then? Another question is, you know, how, has someone actually found the ark? You know, every once in a while somebody comes along on the Nat Geo channel or something and they claim that they found the final resting place 
of the ark. Or sometimes our questions are more logistical, like how could you even fit all of those animals on the ark? And how many animals would the ark even hold? Well, I can answer that one for you here this morning. Uh, scholars believe, based on the estimates, uh, based on the, the actual uh, you know, length and size of the ark, that probably 35,000 animals could have fit on the ark. And that raises all kinds of other questions like, how much poop would 35,000 animals have done a day and more importantly, whose responsibility was it to clean up all of that? And even more important than that, where did they put all of that? You know what I'm saying? I mean, these are important questions, right? Okay? Questions like, how did they get all the animals on there in the first place? You know, did Noah just stand there and go, okay, tigers, come here, kitty, kitty, kitty. You know, I mean, how, how did he do that? You know, did he have this special whistle? Like, if I could, I'd whistle that, like, really loud whistle thing for you, but I've never been able to do that, so I'm not even going to try, okay? But anyway, you know, did he whistle, and they just all, you know, kind of showed up? How did he get all those animals, 35,000, on the ark? And then here's a question that I, I really want to ask God one of these days is, Hey, God, when, when you were calling the animals on two by two, and Noah was standing there, how come you didn't command Noah to screen out the snakes? You know what I'm saying? Like we just got through talking about last week, the problem that the serpent caused, right? And how God cursed the serpent, you know? And so like we could have gotten rid of our whole serpent problem right then and there. You know, just don't let them get on the ark, right? You know, so no rattlesnakes, no copperheads, no water moccasins, no coral snakes. You know, any, any of those, you know, just they're banned from getting on the ark. It's okay if we lose one species, God, okay? You know, so let's just, you know, why didn't Noah do that? I, I, I have no idea. And these are good questions, right? But these are not the questions that the story of Noah and the ark are really intended to answer. Really, the story of the flood is about God's rebooting of creation after it had gone terribly wrong. How many of you, I don't have to ask, I don't have to ask this. All of us in this room have computers, right? And every once in a while, your computer freezes up. Maybe you get the spinning wheel of death if you're a Mac user in here. That doesn't happen very often, but on occasion it does. You get the spinning wheel of death, and at that point, the only option you have is to reboot, right? Reboot the computer. And you're crossing your fingers, and you're hoping the computer reboots properly and comes back on, because otherwise you're going to have to get on the phone, and you're going to have to call some tech center in India and talk to somebody that you can't understand, right? You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? And so uh, we reboot our computer, and we hope that it comes back and it starts working properly again. Well, the flood was kind of like God's attempt at rebooting his creation. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to dive into these four chapters that cover the flood. Don't, don't worry, we're not going to read all four chapters, okay? We're going to kind of jump around a little bit, but there's four things that I believe that we need to get from the story of Noah and the ark here this morning. Here's the first thing that we need to understand. The first thing that we're going to encounter, that sin breaks the heart of God. Sin breaks the heart of God. Let's go to our text, Genesis chapter 6, 
and we're going to read verses 5 through 7 as we kind of get started here this morning. And it says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. Here's the first thing I want you to notice. I want you to notice the parallels between our story here today and Genesis chapter 1. Now we just read Genesis chapter 1 a couple of weeks ago. I know you've slept since then, but Genesis chapter 1 is uh, the creation story, right? And you'll remember at the end of every single day, when God had created space and he had filled it at the end of every single day, there was this phrase that appeared over and over again. You remember what it was? The Lord saw it and it was good. The Lord saw it and it was good. The Lord saw it and it was good. But I want you to notice what our text says here in verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of man had become. And how bad was it? How bad was humanity, the wickedness of humanity at this point? How bad was it? Well, verse 5 tells us. And I don't know that you can read a more depressing verse in all of Scripture, but verse 5 says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Only evil all the time. So what the writer is telling us here is that the human heart, The human race has become completely and utterly depraved. Like this is the picture of total depravity of the human race. Only evil all the time. This means that in every heart, every man, every woman, every child, what they were constantly thinking about was evil all the time. That's how bad things had gotten in God's creation. But rather than becoming angry and speaking the world out of existence, because it's a good thing I'm not God, like I would totally mess things up a hundred times, a thousand times, a million times over, okay? But if if I would have been God, you know, what my temptation would have been to do would have been like, okay, let's just restart. So let me zap the earth, let me just destroy it completely, let me recreate a brand new earth with brand new human beings, and, and let's get it, you know, let's get it right this time. Maybe they won't screw things up. I mean, that would have been my temptation if I was God, but that's not what God does. Rather than zapping the earth and destroying it and starting all over again, what does the text tell us? It tells us something very shocking, that God grieved God grieved. He grieved over the state of humanity. His heart was literally filled with pain. Elsewhere in the book of Genesis, the same word that's used here is used to describe someone who is mourning the death or the loss of someone. God is grieving. What is he grieving? 
He doesn't regret or grieve making man, but that man, because of his sin, has so shattered the image of God that he has become something so much less than God's original intended purpose. This is why God is grieving. Because man has fallen so far from the way in which God had originally created him in his image. And it broke the heart of God. How can this be? How could God grieve over human beings? I think the answer is this, because even though he didn't need to create us initially, he created us in his image, and when he did that, he bound up his heart and his life with ours. So how could he not grieve over the state of his most prized creation, man and woman and child, human beings? I mean, parents, you get this, don't you? When your son or your daughter, they disobey you, uh, they do something that causes pain, that causes harm, um, it hurts you deeply as a parent. It breaks your heart when they disobey you. When you've told them directly not to do something, and they go ahead and they do it away, it breaks your heart. Well, it breaks God's heart. When human beings created in his image are living in a way that is opposite of the way that he intended for us to live. Your sin and my sin, it breaks God's heart and it causes him to grieve. Here's the second thing I want us to notice in our story here today. Faith in God is risky, but always rewarded. Faith in God is risky, but always rewarded. Let's keep reading. Let's uh, start in verse 8 of chapter 6. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so again, the whole earth is just full of human beings who are constantly thinking about how can I do evil? How can I do violence towards someone else? How can I do evil? And yet the story tells us that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is something that we're going to see throughout Scripture that God always has someone set aside. There's always someone that's not going along with the rest of culture. There's always someone who's trying to follow the Lord and do what he wants them to do, even when everyone else around them is not. And that's Noah. Verse 9, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make for yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth and destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you. 
and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. So I want you to notice how Noah is described here, what his characteristics are that are pointed out here for us. It says that he, was, he had found favor in God's sight, he was righteous, he was blameless, and he walked with God. You know, when I think about the definition of what it means to be godly, man, this is what I think about, someone who walks with God. And this is a phrase, unfortunately, that is not used very often of very many people in Scripture, but Noah is one of the few that this phrase is used of. He walked with God. Enoch is another one that says, walked with God. Enjoyed sweet fellowship and intimacy of relationship with God and was so close to him, man, he lived his life for him. That's what it means. But I want you to imagine the conversation that happens between God and Noah, okay? So the conversation, you know, probably goes something like this. Noah, yes, God, I am going to flood the earth. Flood? What is a flood? What do you mean when you say you're going to flood the earth? At this point, we don't know how much it had rained. It rained some at this point, but more than likely it had never flooded before. So Noah wouldn't know the first thing about what a flood was, okay? And so he says, I'm going to flood the earth. And, and so God has to give him this description, this explanation of what a flood is. I'm going to send water you know, by rain and cause the rivers and the streams and the oceans to rise. And literally every piece of land that you can see, it's going to be covered. That's a flood. Oh, okay. Man, that sounds pretty bad, God. And here's what I want you to do. I'm going to save you and your family because you try to serve me. You try to follow me. So here's how I'm going to do that. I want you to build an ark. An ark. Okay, God, what, well, what is an ark? Okay, an ark is a big boat, Noah, okay? And it's going to fit all of the animals that I want you to put onto it and your family as well. And it's going to keep you safe from the flood that's going to be coming. Okay, you want me to build an ark. You want me to build a, a, a huge boat. Okay, God, here's the deal. Um, I work the ground. I'm a gardener. Genesis chapter 9 actually tells us this. I'm a gardener. I, I, I work the ground. In fact, I specialize in vineyards, okay? I don't know the first thing about building a boat, okay? That's okay because I'm going to tell you exactly how to go about building it. So you can just imagine, you know, Noah's astonishment, his surprise. Uh, he's completely taken back by this, right? Uh, but what does he do. He does it. Because verse 22 says that he did everything that God commanded him. Everything that God commanded. And can you imagine the ridicule? I mean, we don't know exactly where Noah was at this point when God told him that he was going to flood the earth. But he was hundreds of miles away from the nearest body of water, huge body of water, the nearest ocean. Hundreds of miles away. And so you can just imagine what the people are saying as Noah and his family are building this huge boat. 
you know, hey, where's the flood? You know, no, they wouldn't have said that because they didn't know what it was. But, you know, you can, you can just imagine, hey, what are you going to do with that? Man, Noah, have you seen what he's building? That dude has done, lost it. He is crazy. He has gone really senile in his old age. And you can just imagine the insults. You can imagine the ridicule. And it wasn't like it took him just a year to build the ark. Scholars don't know how long it took them, anywhere from 20 to upwards of 100 years. We don't exactly know. But it took them years to build the ark, and day after day after day, someone would have come by and said, look at that silly old coot. Man, he's, he has lost his mind. What is he doing building this big boat out in the middle of nowhere? They weren't laughing when it started raining. And this tells us something very important about faith. That faith requires you to risk. It requires you to risk sometimes literally everything. Your reputation, your family, your finances. Faith requires us to risk. That's just the nature of faith. And what God is calling Noah to do is to live by faith. And we know that he lived his life by faith. In fact, Noah shows up in the hall of faith listed in Hebrews chapter 11. And specifically in verse 7, this is what it says about Noah. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. Faith requires us to risk for God. There's no playing it safe There's no comfort zone when we're talking about living a life of faith for God. God would have none of that because that's opposite of living a life of faith. But Noah is a great example of someone who lived a life of faith. Here's something I want you to notice about faith. It's not the initial yes that shows that you have faith. It's the follow-through that determines if you have faith. You see, the writer of Hebrews doesn't commend Noah's yes, Lord. He commends his follow-through for the years and years and years and years it took to build the ark when he had never seen a flood, nor did he really even know if it was going to begin to rain. And yet he trusted God by faith, and we see that he had faith because he followed through. Some of you have prayed a prayer in this room. You've walked an aisle. You've gotten saved at camp. You've you've walked an aisle at camp. You have gotten baptized in the baptistry. But here's the deal. The question is not, have you stood in a baptistry and declared that Jesus is your Lord? But does your life today declare that he is Lord? You see, it's not the initial yes. It's how are you living your life every day that is evidence of whether you truly do have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ and you're following him or you don't and you're not. It's not what your mouth says that determines if you have faith, but it's what your life says. And that's what we learn from Noah's life. Our speaker this weekend, uh, last night in fact, Uh, told the students about this, and I I wrote it down. I'll probably mess this up, but it fits with what we're talking about here this morning. 
So he, he said this. He said, your walk talks and your talk talks. Students, you can help me out if I mess this up. Your walk talks and your talk talks, but your talk doesn't, your walk doesn't, your walk talks louder than your talk talks. Is that it? Did I get it? Okay, it was terribly confusing. He had to say it like five times for us, okay? All right, so your walk talks, the way that you live your life, it speaks about who you are and what you believe and who you're following and who you're living for. Your talk talks as well, your speech, so you can say all day long that you're a Christ follower. But what's going to talk the loudest is not your words, but it's going to be your actions, it's going to be your life. Your walk talks louder than your talk talks. And we see that here in the life of Noah. So how does God reward Noah's faith? By saving he and his family. By giving them the plans to the ark. And by faith they build the ark. And by faith they go into the ark. And then it begins to rain. And it rains, 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 and it rains. And the earth is flooded, and yet they are saved. Why? Because God rewards our faith. God always rewards our faith. Sometimes it's super obvious how he's rewarding your faith, but God always rewards someone who lives a life of faith in him. What happens next? Well, the next thing that we see here is that the flood is the pattern for God's solution to sin, not the solution itself. The flood is God's pattern for God's solution to sin, but it's not the solution itself. So let's keep reading. Let's skip on over to chapter 7, and we're going to read verses 17 through 23. Chapter 7, verses 17 through 23. For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth. And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark, flooded on, uh, the ark floated on the surface of the water. I, I, I found that really funny as I was reading it this week. I don't know why, I just started laughing. The ark was floating on the surface of the water. You, you can imagine uh, as it was raining and the, and the water was, was rising, and all of a sudden that boat, the ark, it lifts up off of the ground, right? It's now floating. And you you, you got to wonder if we're, there was a collective sigh in the ark, you know? It's like, okay, we built it right, okay? Uh, you know, the, the, the pitch it's holding, all right? There, there's no water coming through. You know, I'm sure they were just staring all over at the floor of the, of the ark, right, uh, as they were floating along. And so it was like, man, we did it right. We're floating, okay? We're not sinking, okay? All right, so let's keep reading. Sorry, that was just kind of my little thing. They, they rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heaven were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on land perished, birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swam over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. Now let's skip on over to chapter 8, and let's look at verses 18 through 21. So Noah and his family, we don't know exactly how long they were in the ark. Scholars 
give a rough, a rough estimate of 370, 380 days. So more than a year they are in the ark, okay? So just want you to not miss that. They're in there for a really long time, okay? So verse uh, 18 of chapter 8, So Noah came out together with all his sons and his wife and his son's wives, all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on land came out of the ark one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. So here's the question for us. What is the flood? I mean, as we look at what God is doing, what is the flood? Is the flood just about judgment? I think the answer to that has to be no. It's not just about judgment. The flood is about salvation through judgment. It's salvation through judgment. Not salvation in spite of judgment. Not salvation and judgment. Not half salvation and half judgment. It is salvation through judgment. Because God puts Noah and his family in the ark and in come the waters of judgment. And two things happen here. First of all, they give the world a fresh start. They give the world a fresh start. By God placing Noah and his family in the ark, he is giving uh, a fresh start, the opportunity for a fresh start among God's creation and God's creation. Even in the animals, he's giving the, the opportunity for a fresh start on the earth, as God judges human violence, as he deals with the sin of uh, humanity at that time, the human violence specifically that was going on against uh, fellow human beings all the time. But at the same time, he's saving the world. He's redeeming the world, and he's giving the human race a second chance. And so what we see God doing here is establishing this pattern that we're going to see throughout Scripture of God saving through judgment. Saving through judgment. But the flood is not the solution to humanity's sin problems. And we know this, right? Because we know that we still have sin uh, in the world today. We still have violence in the world today. We, we still have you know, murder and killings and all kinds of stuff in the world today. And so we know that wasn't the end of it. That it didn't really deal with humanity's sin problem. Because Genesis chapter 9 would be the end of the story if it did. And so why wasn't it? Why wasn't the flood... The solution, why wasn't it the end of humanity's sin problem? It's because of what Noah took in the ark with him. What did Noah take in the ark with him? Well, Noah took animals two by two into the ark. Uh, he took food for them and food for himself and his family. He took his family into the ark, but Noah took something else into the ark with him. His sin nature. He and his family 
took their sin nature into the ark. And that's why the story, God's story, doesn't end in Genesis chapter 9. Because human sin, our human tendency towards sin, our human nature has not been ultimately dealt with. And we know that it wasn't dealt with because in chapter 9, immediately after God, uh, you know, causes the waters to go away and recede and, 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 and Noah and his family, they get out of the ark, chapter 9 just at the end of chapter 9, what we read about is, you know, Noah, who has planted a vineyard, and evidently he really enjoyed the crops from his vineyard, namely the fermented wine. Well, he gets to drinking a little bit too much one night, and he gets drunk, and he passes out naked in his tent for all the world to see. We know that his sin nature has not been dealt with because of the flood. And our sin nature had not been dealt with because of the flood. A flood isn't the solution, but it introduces us to the pattern God will use throughout his grand story. And it gives us a glimpse into how he will ultimately deal with our sin problem. Which leads us to the fourth point. Four chapters, four points. I didn't plan it that way, but that's how it worked out, all right? So what's the fourth point? It's the most important one. The, the rainbow anticipates the gospel of grace. You see, this is where we see how God is going to establish a pattern that he's going to follow and one day is going to ultimately deal with our sin problem. Let's go, let's go to Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 through 17, and read about the rainbow that God sends and the promise that God makes. Genesis chapter 9, we're going to be again reading in verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. Here's what I want you to see is so significant about the sign that God gives of the promise and the covenant that he's making. In essence, when we look at the rainbow, we begin to talk about the rainbow, we begin to talk about the sign that God gives. I believe what we see here in the rainbow is the gospel itself. We see the gospel itself. We can anticipate the coming gospel as we, as we see this sign that God gives that he's never going to flood the earth ever, ever again. How do we see the gospel? First of all, God's grace can only be seen against the backdrop of dark clouds. 
Let's take a picture. Look, look at this picture here real quick. So here's the deal with a rainbow. You never see a rainbow on a cloudless, sunny day. Never, right? You always see a rainbow against the backdrop of dark, rain-filled clouds, stormy clouds, ominous clouds. This is when you and I, this is when we see a rainbow. It's against the backdrop of something dark, of, of something ominous, of something dangerous, of something that's threatening. Never do we find God's grace unless something has gotten us to see our weakness, our insufficiency, our flawedness, our sin, our need for him. So when we talk about this spiritually, here's what we're talking about. We're talking about the darkness, the backdrop of our lives, which are sin-filled. And there's absolutely no way that we can experience the grace of God, which is represented in the rainbow. There's no way we can experience that until we first of all come to the realization that our lives are full of dark sin. You see, the backdrop of God's grace is our sin and our recognition that we need God's grace. And none of us in this room can ever begin a relationship with God until we, first of all, recognize the fact that our lives are covered in deep, dark sin, wickedness. And it's only at that point that we can reach out for God and experience His grace. You know, I oftentimes say the gospel begins with bad news. The bad news is that our hearts are dark because they're full of sin. They're full of sin. And the only way that we're going to experience the grace of God, which is the good news of the gospel, is first of all realizing how dark our hearts truly are. But here's the second thing that we see about how the rainbow anticipates the gospel of grace. And that is that God's grace is only made possible because God reoriented his bow toward heaven. What do I mean? Well, interestingly enough, in the Hebrew in which the Old Testament is written, the actual word is not rainbow. Rainbow is not in your text, but the word bow is. The word bow is. And the word bow that's used here is the kind of bow that we typically think of, bow and arrow, a weapon. That's the word that's used here. And when you think about it, it's almost as if God is saying, I am putting up my bow. Here's the sign of the covenant that I'm never going to flood the earth again and wipe out all of humanity and wipe out all the creatures on earth. And so here's my sign. Here's the covenant. I am putting up my bow. And when you look at the rainbow, it looks like a bow that's turned upside down that's been hung up, doesn't it? You see that? It looks like a bow that's just been placed on the wall and hung up. And I want you to notice where it's pointing. 
It's not pointing down at the earth. It's, it's not going this way, right? It's going that way. Where's it pointed to? It's pointed up to heaven. God has not ceased from being just and punishing evil with his wrath, but he has reoriented his bow. It is no longer pointing down at us, but it is pointing toward heaven and toward himself. But why? Why would he do that? Why would he point his bow at himself? And the answer is found in the last point. That God's grace is experienced at the intersection of God's storm of eternal justice and the sun of God's love. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the cross. I'm talking about the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, the story of Noah and the flood is establishing a divine pattern of salvation through judgment. And one day, God would provide the once-for-all solution to our sin problem. God would save us from our sin by judging his son Jesus. He would save us from his wrath by pouring it out upon Jesus. And just as he saved Noah and his family in the midst of a flood, when everyone else was drowning in God's judgment, God would save us by drowning Jesus. In his judgment. You see, every time that we see a rainbow, and I know it's been co-opted, but every time we see a rainbow, it should remind us that God has set his bow up. He's put it up. And rather than pointing it down at us, he has pointed it at his son Jesus for eternity. So that Jesus would take our punishment. So that Jesus would take our judgment upon himself. So that we could be freed. So that we could be saved in the ark, if you will, of Jesus' cross and his resurrection. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, we are just so thankful for the fact that you are a God who makes promises. You're a God who makes covenants. And God, you provide us with tangible signs to remind us of the promises that you make to us. And God, one of the promises that you've made to us is that you will never again judge us 